0: All right. it is uh, Wednesday the 3rd of January 2018, and this is the promotional, pardon me, malpractice live chat. My name is Luke Thomas of MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. We'll go for about mm, 87 minutes or so talking about the latest and greatest in mixed martial arts. It's the first one of 2018, so I'm very, very excited to do this, although we were here last week as well. But, you know, nevertheless, I do believe, however, you know, imperfect the calendar system might be. Uh, Gregorian or otherwise, it nevertheless has a, uh, a, I don't know, sort of a turn the page kind of value, does it not? Uh, things to get to today are going to be, of course, all this Habib Tony stuff and this, uh, really the biggest winner coming out of UFC 219 has got to be Habib Nurmagomedov, right? So we'll talk a lot about that. Uh, we'll get to some Chris Cyborg stuff, some Jackson Link stuff, a lot to get to best place of course to do it's going to be in the comments section of mmafighting.com and you can hit me up on twitter as well uh twitter.com slash l thomas news you can use the hashtag chat rappers you guys know the instructions at this point i've been doing this chat for about five years if not longer than that so uh you might be noticing i have a hat on today you might be saying luke you're too old to be wearing a hat and you would be correct i really am but it's a great hat it's uh, if you guys um If you don't, I don't know how, you know, NBA is probably the best sports league out right now, um, at least in the United States anyway. And uh, they have a new series where they're like putting out gear that is not really specific to the city, of course, but sort of more representative of it. And if you guys don't know, Washington, D.C. is the only place in the country that is not part of a state. It is an independent, well, not independent territory, but um, um, we don't have a voting member of Congress. We have no senator. Uh, the federal government sort of controls the city but there's a lot of pride believe it or not for people who are native to the area this is the dc flag as you can see right it's very common if you live here you'll see people get dc flag tattoos all over themselves Uh, i do not have one but i'm not opposed to getting one Uh, and then of course this is sort of like what it looks like on the marble of the various places of the washington uh, monuments and then of course the wizards logo i understand that they're a mediocre to decent team and I'm okay with that because they're not good enough to get my hopes up to rip my heart out later on down the road, which is actually a better place than the capitals have left me the last 10 years. So there you go. All right. Uh let's get this going, shall we? First question. Okay, uh, here we go. Good one. First question Habib's master class. What now with the lightweight title picture? After Habib's virtuoso performance on Saturday, you can make a case for either of him, Tony, or Connor being the best lightweight in the world. But how do you think the title picture will play out? Ooh, the easy answer is Connor versus Tony, winner versus Habib. But Connor won't commit to anything if the money isn't right. And here we are, the most stacked division in the UFC and no action at the top. Who do you think will be the lightweight champ at the end of 2018? How do you see Habib, Connor, Tony match up against each other? Can Connor beat any of them if it goes past seven minutes? Well, I would definitely favor Connor over both of them in the first seven minutes. I can say that pretty definitively. Oops, something going on? No, okay, we're good. Um, I would definitely favor Connor in the first seven minutes. After that, probably not, um, because those guys are, as we've seen, sort of the Achilles, well, not the Achilles heel, the the. Habib has this tendency to go long when perhaps he doesn't need to. Perhaps he should be getting things done earlier. But as you can see, he's still a potent force even later in a fight in ways that um, McGregor has typically had some issues with. Um, Although, you know, McGregor's had some long fights too. But in any case, we talked about this ad nauseum. I would favor McGregor early in both those contests because I think I, I basically favor his boxing over just about anybody early. After that, i don't know probably not um but okay how's this gonna play out so let's do some thinking about this here ramadan i believe i could be off by a day or so ramadan runs around may 15th or may 16th of this year until i believe the middle of june so let's say mid-may mid-june so that's that month of ramadan um i talked to javier mendez yesterday habib's coach and uh, obviously the coach at aka and what i asked him was when is he going to fight again and how many times this year and he was like well you know hard to say exactly but if he had his way and what he thinks he's advising or what he's going to advise habib to do is to fight three times once before ramadan once in september and once in december you know if he had his way however likely that is uh, that's the direction he would go which means they got to get a fight in before ramadan which means that if they want to get a fight in before Ramadan, I really find it very unlikely that they get McGregor in the mix in that case. Um, whatever it is that's holding them back, uh, whether it's an ownership state claim, whether it's sort of an extraordinary pay raise, whether it's the uh, desire to co-promote or some combination of all three. Uh, if they're already telling you they're not expecting him to come back until a summer return, um, then I don't – I mean, maybe Habib will wait for something to happen after that, but that seems terribly unlikely. You've got this month, so January, February, March, and then April. And I think he said he wanted him to get a fight in April. That means he would give him the month of January and, you know, some of February off, depending on how they did the camp, and then get him into that April timeline. If that's really the timeline they're going for, then I expect a Habib versus Tony fight. I just don't expect Tony to get – I just – Habib's not gonna fight anyone else but Tony or Connor. Connor saying he wants to come back in the summer, most likely, or whenever that, you know, UFC sufficiently meets his needs, whenever that might be. And pardon me, I have a bit of a I have a bit of a uh, I have a bit of a allergies today. Um and so that really leaves sort of one one choice here, which is gonna to be Tony Ferguson. Um that's my hunch, and my hunch is that Connor's going to get the winner of that. Now, I think that might be dismaying to some of us who say, you know, we want Connor to fight both of those guys at some point, right? I mean, Connor versus Tony, incredible. Connor versus Habib, frankly, feels like even the bigger fight at this point. However, crazy that might be given that Tony has been on an incredible win streak and is the interim champion, but suffice to say um, that just feels like the scenario now. So if my hunch, my hunch is that they get a fight between Connor and, excuse me, between Tony and Habib done before Ramadan. And the winner of that will fight Connor at some point in the summer. And then what happens after that, I guess we'll have to see, you know, what they're going to do with Nate Diaz and what they're going to do with any of those guys. But um, that is how I would map it out. Now you ask, in addition to that, yeah, you're saying the easy answer is Connor versus Tony. I don't know that that is the easy answer. Um, who do you think will be the lightweight champ at the end of 2018? Boy, that is impossible to say. People love doing that. Like, who's going who's gonna to the next set of champs? And i am always been really bad at that. So, I mean, you know, um, I don't think it'll be Connor because I don't think he can beat both of those guys. I think he can probably beat one of them. I don't think he can beat both of them. And someone's going to say, oh, you're being a Connor hater. I'm not being a Connor hater. You fight guys like Tony Ferguson, you fight guys like Connor uh, McGregor, too, and you fight guys like Habib, Nurmagomedov. You can't beat all of them. It's just not realistic unless you're just some kind of superhuman. And the the fact of the matter is Habib in some ways, like Tony, is a bad matchup for Connor. and Connor in some ways is a bad matchup for those guys, right? We all know the scenario there. So do I really think all like, that there's one person who can beat all of them consistently over time? I've, I've a hard time believing that, to be honest. So no, I don't think it'll be Connor if he actually defends it. And if he doesn't defend it, he'll be stripped anyway. So, um, so that's my sense about that. Uh, how do you see Connor Habib, Tony match up against each other? Um, Connor has, obviously, so if you watch the Monday Morning Analyst, we just took we just took. a, I didn't go into great detail about it because there was so much other stuff to get to, but we went back and reviewed. If you watch how uh, Habib closes the distance on Edson Barboza, you can actually see what Connor's argument is a little bit about that. A little bit. Now, calling it dog ass is, just ignore that. That's just him. That's just banter. But um, you can see some things he does there that if you're Conor McGregor, you'd be like, okay, do that to me and we're going to have problems, right? I mean, there's there's literally moments there where I think it was in the second round or the third round, one takedown doesn't work and uh, Edson sort of retreats to the other side of the octagon and then moves laterally at the same time and you literally see habib crossing his feet and stuff like not paying any attention to footwork whatsoever yeah like if you do that against connor he's gonna make you pay i don't know why that's would be very controversial even for the most sincere habib fan but i think a habib fan and i brought this up with javier mendez yesterday his argument was well yeah but we're not going to do that with Connor. And if you go back and you watch the fights with RDA, um, you go back and you watch the fight with Horcher, and you go back and you watch the fight more recently with Michael Johnson, what you tend to see is that early on, uh, Habib is very, ba- he's bouncing on his feet. He's moving in, he's moving out, he's moving laterally, typically outside of the way of the power hand. Um, and what he wants to do is he wants to find a scenario where you're behind the two black lines so then he can shoot. The first shot is not very good, but that's just enough to get you to back up into the fence where there is now a redoubled effort. And from there, you can see how it goes. Against RDA, he launched a series of flurries to get him back, shot, pushed him. And then once he was there, he just completely dominated him. Uh, Daryl Horcher, it did a bit of a sort of a different, almost like a rotational trick. To get him to back up and then shot in and got him in. And then Michael Johnson, same kind of thing. So, sort of this sort of steering him and corralling him in a way with just enough forward pressure, just enough corralling and cage cutting um, to get him behind that spot. Shoot, doesn't work. Reshot or, you know, uh, fire the right underhook against the fence. And then from there, you know, no, nobody in that division can stop him basically once he gets there. So, um, so the point being is against people who come forward, he actually doesn't mind backing up a little bit. Now, Conor McGregor is not necessarily that guy, so they're going to have to have some kind of adjustment from what they had with Edson Barboza, which is just march right across to Conor, um, and we're going to see how he does that. But you've also seen Conor sometimes, like against Chad Mendez, right? What did he do right away? Backed him up, whoop, right behind the two black lines. So it'll be a very it, – look, it, this is why the fight would be great because it'd be a really, really interesting ch- uh, chess match. And on the feet, Connor's uh, totally overmatches him, and on the ground or even in the clinch, I feel like Habib would just maul about anybody. Tony's the one that's a bit of an X factor because I feel like Tony's like this sort of forgotten talent in the division a little bit. Um, You know, on the ground, I don't feel like anybody is like Habib Nurmagomedov at all. And on the ground, Tony's game is very different. Tony doesn't mind playing guard a little bit. Not much of a you know a top passer control guy. Uh, But he can wrestle, but prefers to anti wrestle. Uh, and then doesn't mind just sort of being weird and unorthodox on the feet. I feel like early that would be a really big problem against Connor um, because Connor would be very precise. his timing is very good, his accurate his accuracy is super strong. Um, but over as you saw in the RDA fight, over time as that kind of style that Tony brings gets warmed up and he and in the case of RDA shuts down the takedown and in the case of Connor would completely shut down the takedown. I don't think Connor can really take tony down unless he was hurt or wanted to go to the ground but as you can see when he begins to warm up and switch stances and then he just gets comfortable um he can he can hit so many different things it's just a question of how reckless he wants to be um connor is the king of making people who take risks pay for it um and that's why the tony fight would be a little bit interesting but if he wanted to make that fight a wrestling contest that would be different as well uh, I just feel like I, I, you're just going to see Conor fight the winner of those two for all the reasons aforementioned. The scheduling just makes it a bit more of a complicated issue. But um, all those fights are fights we need to see. We need to see Conor Tony. We need to see Conor Habib. and We need to see Habib Tony. And we probably need to see them all a couple of times. You know, the best that when the UFC light heavyweight division was like the division, the top guys, and including in Pride too, the top guys were taking turns on each other. You know, Vitor's fighting couture and couture's fighting tito and tito's fighting vitor and then over in pride you've got Vanderlei fighting rampage and um you know uh, 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 what those uh, well they wouldn't fight because they're in the same team but you know then you had um you know rampage and shogun and then you had shogun and I don't know, the list goes on over there, right? So it was all of these guys taking turns, and that's what really made it very, very interesting. Um, You're seeing something similar now play out both at Bantamweight and at Lightweight, two of the better divisions in mixed martial arts. Someone hijacked this comment, which everyone gets bitter about, but I'm going to answer it because it's relevant anyway. Best MMA commentator in the sport. That's a really very difficult question to answer. Um, Happy New Year, Luke, in 2018. Happy New Year to you guys. Which of these would be your pick for best MMA commentator? Well, they all do very different things. Um, you've picked, in this particular case, Mar Ranallo, Julie Kedzie, Jimmy Smith, Frank Trigg, Joe Rogan. This person says, I am very partial to Kedzie and Smith. Uh, any of those choices are good because all of those people are good, although I've not heard Frank Trigg commentate in some years. I know he did Ryzen, but I haven't heard him since. Um, oof, back when he was doing like HDNet fights or something. Um. So to answer the question, first of all, they do different things. Mara Ranallo is a play-by-play guy. Julie Kedzie is color. Jimmy is color. Frank is color. Joe Rogan is color. So play-by-play, color. Not the same things. We've been over this before. I had someone be like, how is Bellator going to get rid of, you know, um, they were, no, excuse me, how is UFC going to get, they were were surmising that UFC was going to bring in Jimmy Smith and they were saying, how is UFC going to bring in Jimmy Smith and get rid of Goldie? It's like, well, easily, because they don't do the same things. Now, you can be upset about Jimmy Smith coming in and you can be upset about Goldie going out, but they do radically different jobs. I've tried to explain this before. I'm a bit mystified about why there's some controversy about this. There are two, there's many different kinds of commentators, but there's two basic types. And the basic types are play-by-play, and color, and they are functionally very, very different things. You can train certain people to fill both roles, but when they take that broadcasting role over, they're they're doing a specific job function, limited to that role. You can you can play around the edges a little bit, but here's my point: the play-by-play guy, your Mike Goldbergs, your Mara Ronaldo's, your John Annex, your Brendan Fitzgeralds, your uh, Dan Hellys. These are play-by-play guys. These are the guys who are, in theory, the maestros of the entire thing. They are the ones that are taking direction from the house. They are they are the ones that are guiding the broadcast. They are really the captain of the ship, to be quite honest. They have the highest workload, typically, because what they are doing is doing the most amount of talking, typically. They're the ones who are doing all the commercial reads. They're the ones who are throwing to and absorbing the all the production elements, and they are the ones that are setting up and uh, guiding either the other one or two other color commentators. They might provide some level of analysis, but that's really not what they're there for. They're there to tell you what is happening and then to be the front man for the production team in the house um, and to really guide everything. The color guy is very different, and this works not really in MMA in all sports. You've got Joe Buck, who is Joe Buck. He is quite clearly not the football expert. Although he has some knowledge about football, he is the play-by-play guy. The color is Troy Aikman, the former player. Now, he's a former player turned broadcaster, but nevertheless, that's what he is. And he is the one in between when the play-by-play guy is giving a uh, direction and a call is... Telling you sort of what it all means, giving it context, giving it definition, really helping you to get keen insight. That's why Dominic Cruz talks about somebody's footwork or the way in which they're competing a certain way. And Joe Rogan makes some observation about someone's jujitsu or their rubber guard because they're the subject matter experts. They're not the same thing. And you can't – You some people can cross both roles, but they're not really – supposed to interchange nba has something called nba players only where it's only players who commentate but even then the other players who are commentating the ones who are not doing color they're doing play by play by training so they're still fulfilling that role you have to have those roles hbo boxing plays around with it a little bit they do color with um roy jones and max kellerman and then they have the play-by-play in Jim Lampley, but Max and Roy, while both giving insight, Roy does a lot more of the technical insight, the fighter's mind. Max does a little bit more about the macro sense of things, um, maybe a little about history, and so they, they 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 work well together in that space. Maybe the best three-man booth in all of combat sports. But I hope that clears this up a little bit. I know a lot of people are being like, "Oh, um, you know." Um, Bellator should replace Jimmy Smith with it should be Mike Goldberg and Morrow together. No, it shouldn't be. That would be not a great broadcast. Even if you like both of those guys, uh, they're not suited for that. Or conversely, that UFC should be Jimmy Smith and Joe Rogan. No, it shouldn't be. That's not what they're suited for. That's not how this works at all. The people who are the people who are the play-by-play guys are, are functionally very, 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 very different. It's a very different skill set and a very different job responsibility. And frankly, in my judgment, having done it at a very low level and done it quite poorly, but at least been witness to it at a high level, I actually think it's the harder job. It's easier to have a wealth of information and then polish some broadcasting skills that, and then bring it to life. Not that it's easy, but relatively easier than being the guy who has to do all the reads, who has to throw to all the production elements, who has to do the majority of the talking. Yo, I don't want that job at all. Last thing about this, I think a lot of reasons why people get confused is I don't know how much sports MMA fans watch more generally, but in particular, and then one of my criticisms of Mike Goldberg has been precisely this. I know a lot of you like him and that's fine. I'm not here to bash him anymore but i didn't like the way that his relationship with joe rogan was set up in a lot of ways not because he was necessarily all that bad at it but he would let joe at times or i don't know whose call it was but joe would end up doing some play-by-play calling during the course of his color commentary he would sort of articulate to you what's happening without it being necessarily something that called for dramatic insight and so there was this bleeding into the territory of somebody else. The roles were not distinct, and so it got confusing, I think, for fans at times. Um, I like it now, and it's a little bit more distinct. A John Annick Paul Felder broadcast team, very distinct. John Anik is going to be the guy who's sort of generally telling you what's happened, and then Paul Felder's going to drop an anvil of insight on you, and then you move on to the next fight. That's how it's supposed to go. Clear, distinct, professional roles. I think that works better in the long run. All right. Someone says I like Rogan and Cruz. I like them as well. I don't like them if there was the only two in the booth. They would need a. They would need a play-by-play guy. Together by themselves would not necessarily be all that great. You'd need somebody else. But independently, is Rogan a good color commentator? Yes, he is. And is uh, Dominic Cruz independently a very good color commentator? Yes, he is. But they're not good play-by-play guys, I'm going to guess. Maybe Rogan could be retrained in that role, but you get the idea. Okay. UFC ban on Jackson Wink photographer over cyborg comments. Uh, What do you think? Nice to see UFC taking a stand against sexist bullying, or is it just hypocrisy when plenty of incidents by other people more important to the UFC, even Dana White, Joe Rogan, have gotten away with just as, if not more, unacceptable behavior? Yeah, I mean, I'm not really one to like, you know, like a seal just you applaud this one. It doesn't mean much to me to be, to be quite honest. Not that it's not nothing. I suppose it's good. Um, but even, even then, I mean, here's a couple of things. I don't know what role Cyborg played in this guy's firing. I know that she was really upset about it and called for something to be done by the UFC. So did the UFC ban this guy because he violated the terms of service for a credential or because they were complying with a fighter who headlines requests. Because if it's the latter, then I have a problem with it. I'm not telling you that it is. I'm simply saying, if, then. Um, I don't think fighters should be in the business of getting uh, reporters, or, and I realize he's not one in this case. But if you're going to hand out credentials, I don't really want fighters who are angry at them to have a dramatic amount of say. When you get a credential, you agree to certain terms. For example, believe it or not, I know this may come as a surprise to some of you, and this is not the case with every promotion, but certainly in the UFC it is. You know, you're not allowed necessarily to uh, dress however you want. They do expect some kind of uh, formal attire in a professional environment. There's some latitude with that, of course, but they do expect that. You're not allowed to drink beer on press row. Um, Certain uh, multimedia restrictions are in place. I I mean, there's a lot of things that you consent to when you accept a credential. If you violated the terms of service, In the course of accepting that credential then then to me i don't really have much of an issue with it but if it's just because a fighter got mad at somebody even if it's behavior that i don't really condone and i don't condone the behavior it's it's shameful and pathetic um but you know if it's because they were bowing to pressure from a fighter i would i would feel very much um not okay with that look i've said this before i don't think that the fighters owe us much. It's great when they give it to us. I frankly feel like it's a much healthier world and a much better world when there's a level of a relationship between the media and the press and um, and the public, I think, ultimately benefits from that. And look, if John Jones doesn't want to answer my questions, fine. He's under no obligation to do so. He didn't call for my firing. He didn't complain to UFC. Other fighters have, by the way not named him, which is why it's like, I mean, if he doesn't want to answer my questions, okay, fine. You don't have to. I'm still going to do my job, but I get it. You don't want to do it. Don't owe me anything. No problem. Uh, I'm not going to apologize and we can move on. There's actually been many other fighters who have complained about some of my work and, and the work of many other of my colleagues. You just never hear about it most of the time because the complaints are totally and completely frivolous and nonsense and never go anywhere under any kind of examination by re- you know, a, a remotely rational person. Um, so in the end, that's fine. But this is my point. You know, fighters not liking coverage and then complain to UFC and wanting some kind of restricted access about it, I think is, 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 and again, I do not know if Cyborg did that. She may not have done that. Okay. And in which case I'm not including her here, but the ones who have, I find that to be the lowest scumbag move imaginable. Um, you know, threatening somebody's livelihood because you didn't like the tenor of fair coverage, please. What a joke that is. So, uh, so to me, it's really a question of what happened here behind the scenes. Cyborg certainly has a right to be upset, and her people certainly have a right to be like. If this person violated the terms of service by which you granted a credential, then you need to have some hard, re- you know, rethinking to do. I think you know leaning on them, perhaps in that context, I'd have no problem with. But as a general rule, fighters not liking coverage and then wanting to affect a, a reporter's livelihood—no, not a fan. If that if that's what happened, not a fan at all, and I would never, in any shape, or, uh, way, or form, condone such a thing. As for the work itself, I mean, we live in a sport where look. I mean, I'm 38 years old. I don't know how old you are. Um, I don't think all forms of bullying are the worst things in the world, um, but I think Cyborg has been subject to an extraordinary amount of bullying. I think an extraordinary amount it has been unfair. Bullying to me is not the same as making a reasonable and informed criticism of somebody. Um, so don't don't conflate the two. If you've got a reasonable and informed criticism to make of her, like anybody else, you are well within your right to make it. Um, And you should, not just about her, but anybody else. But I think when it comes to bullying, um, she's been the subject of a lot more, and I think her patience has run thin. So to to a degree, I think I understand at least some of her frustration probably with it. Um, But, you know, I think the last thing I'll just say about this is, um, you know, whether UFC did the right thing or not, we'll have to see later on about why they made this decision. Um, I don't think any of us are going to miss this guy who... You know, again, I I don't have all the answers when it comes to um, this kind of problem. I am seeing a lot more of camps or, you know, uh, not just camps. Like, for example, the Mac Life gets credentialed. And to their credit, those guys are all very professional. But I think there's a larger question. And again, I don't have the answers. But there's a larger question about to what extent big camps or famous fighters should have. Um, any kind of media through a credentialing process it's 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 a difficult question i'll just say this until people like josh gross or bloody elbow or john snowden are reinstated banning a guy who is quite obviously um you know just can't act professionally whatsoever doesn't really mean much to me you know i mean this is low-hanging fruit somebody who gets on social media and then just says stuff like this in 2018 you know if you did this in 2002 or something when standards were evolving, but not here to this point, you know, we can forgive it a little bit. And again, I'm not, I'm not losing any sleep over one way or the other, but I don't like everyone's like, yeah, good call. I mean, whatever. It's not, you know, it's not nothing, but I, I don't know how much it really means to be honest, you know, it doesn't seem like some major. Does, does it feel like a big win or something? I guess it's a pushback against bullying, and that's probably about as much good as I can say about it. There's nothing really bad about it. Again, provided that you know somebody wasn't fired for you know or, because a fighter pressured them, but if that's not if that's not part of it, and it very well may not be part of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. All right. What is this? Luke, think of all your shorts. The lightweight division currently has no matchups lined up for any of its top 15, except Michael Johnson, who was fighting at featherweight next. Really? So you got Nurmagomedov. Well, okay. Okay. McGregor and Ferguson are your champs, so to speak. Then you got Nurmagomedov, Alvarez, Diaz. Diaz is three. Uh, Gaethje. Barbosa, Poirier, Lee, Pettis, Chiesa, Iaquinta, Dariush, and then Vic, Dunham, Trinaldo, Felder. Good Lord. How is that possible? That's a bigger question, but I had no idea that was, is that really true? Oops. Look at my hair, y'all. It's all jacked up. All right. Yeah, someone else. I, I had no idea that Diaz was three. Me neither. Good Lord. Someone says, even, uh, oh, maybe Diaz is ranked at eighth. Even at eight, that seems high. All right. So there's a lot of questions about Habib's stand up here. It's a good question to have. Uh, hi, Luke. I've watched him Monday More analysis about Habib and enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Uh, but it seems to me that there was more to talk about in his stand up. Okay. To me, it seems like he doesn't have the most crisp striking game, and yet his IQ and decision-making in the stand-up was impeccable. That's a little bit much. Uh, He saw that even with a good amount of pressure, Edson was landing inside leg kicks, and Habib had the IQ and composure to not only walk him down, but to literally run him down, jogging at him. He did do that, and cutting the cage off almost as good as Triple G would do. No, not even close to what Triple G would do to smother him. Uh, His boxing also improved, in my opinion. I liked his hand speed and accuracy, a nice combo in the third, was a stockton slap and his Sambo tall stance that Cruz was referring to, stance that won't allow Edson to knee him and his overall defense blocking one. Well, first of all, as he overcommitted in the third round on the last takedown or after the last takedown, he almost ate a giant knee from Edson. So, I mean, yes, I think Cruz's point is well well stated, but there was moments where he was getting out of that and it was causing it could have caused him a big problem. But okay, fair enough. And it sounds like I'm being a little bit hard on Habib. Uh, let me just clarify something here before we answer this question. Uh, he is the most terrifying. MMA grappler I've ever seen and there was a lot of discussion about Habib and his comparisons to Ben Askren you'll recall that for MMA fighting I did a technique talk about Habib's game with Ben Askren because I knew that there was a lot of similarities between their games and that he would understand what Habib was doing better than most I had seen um I had seen Askrin being very complimentary of Habib on social media at times. So I was like, you know, let me see, if let me see if we'll talk about it. And he did. So I'm very appreciative of that, by the way, but more to the point. Um, I, their games are similar in certain ways, in many, many ways. I think that um there's a lot of things I can say about their differences, but without getting overly specific, the major difference for me is that I think the ground and pound by Habib is a lot stronger. He does a lot of riding and he'll move to mount a lot more. He does a lot more positional advancement than he used to. Doesn't go to the back a lot. does Askren, but Askren I think is a little bit more of a locked in positional kind of guy. And as you saw Cruz notes, there's a lot more work that Habib does on his feet. Habib is not really great punching out all that much, at least not yet. But when he comes down, down. There's a level of violence and ferocity that, to me, far exceeds what Askren does. Now, Askren might be a pioneer there. People have stolen from him. And frankly, Askren has never gotten the credit he deserves. And that's something that is a bit of a shame in MMA. But if you're asking me to say what what, what really separates the two, I think it's the aggression and the violence of Habib. Um, Yes, there are a lot of similarities about wrist control, cross wrist control, leg rides. um, Although I don't see... Habib doing a lot of funk roles, but okay, uh, there, there's a lot to be had there. I don't think the ground and pound is even close to the same, not either in style or in effect. Okay, with that out of the way in acknowledging that Habib is one of a a prodigious semi-once-in-a-generation talent, that when you see somebody who's 25-0 and 0 in, in MMA's lightweight division and he has not fought chumps, um, you begin to get a sense of just how overwhelming his talent is. Let's talk about some of the parts of his game that are not so... Uh, up to speed this person says i think like you said that he's a genius on the ground but that his fighting iq and his game plans to go to the ground when he's on his feet are overlooked and his stamina looked unreal a mini cane funny you mentioned that i just want your thoughts on the improvement of habib's pure stand-up game so this is also very instructive too spoke to javier mendez about this thing well, how would you grade him on the feet and his point was basically like um he said uh i have to go back and look at exactly what he said i'll put the i'll put the video up about it later today but more or less that Habib stand up, He, I was like, because my question was, how much more room for growth does this guy have? You know, on the ground, how much better can he really be? I mean, it's, we're talking about an insane level of dominance. And his answer was, on the ground, not a whole lot more, but some. But on the feet, I, I, I mean, if you think about it, 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 what's the easiest thing to get better at in terms of the amount of uh, room you have to grow? It's the things you're not good at right if you go to uh, the gym and you're not very strong you, that's when you're going to make the most amount of gains if you really work hard if you go to a jiu-jitsu gym and you show up as a white belt you have blue, purple, brown and black all the way to work through if you show up as a black belt you can always grow but we're talking about you know fairly thin margins um and so to me he's obviously like i mean he's a red belt on the ground with what he does in terms of MMA grappling but uh, on the feet, even Javier Mendez was saying he's basically like a low-level pro. I think those are the words he used, um, and I think that's true. Look, functionally, he has enough to stay out of trouble, and I think functionally he has enough to um, to get the job done against just about anybody, including Conor McGregor and Tony Ferguson. Probably, you never know, but probably. But um, you know th- this notion that he had, like you. Y- y- like when he's bouncing in and out of range and circling, it's only for like the first 30 seconds of a fight and then all that goes away. You know, you got to be able to do that for minutes on end and then really begin to like land offense in a an in a, in impactful way. I think some of the stuff that he lands comes from the fact that his opponents are panicking and tripping up in retreat. Or in thinking about what he's going to do. So it looks like his standup is a little bit more impactful than it necessarily is. To me, it's often very flat footed. It's very transactional, like it's a means to an end. Um, and it is getting better. I think he learned from the Michael Johnson fight how to stay out of trouble. I think it's also pretty clear at this point he can take a shot, you know, but can he beat these guys on the feet? I don't think he can beat Tony Ferguson on the feet. And I definitely don't think he can beat Conor McGregor on the feet. Um, and I, I think that should tell you a lot. So to me, it's like, is his stand-up good is not the question. No, it's not. Not yet. The question is, how much better can it be? And you mentioned Kane. And this was the thing that Javier Mendez also said. He goes, Habib right now reminds me of young Kane. And if you saw, I think it was either the Monday morning analyst. Yes, it was yesterday's Monday morning analyst. Well, Tuesday morning, I suppose. But you get the idea. It was when you saw Habib just like Kane used to do. Now, Kane was a little bit more versatile with it, but the right underhook. He was always using that right underhook from that right underhook he can bend posture he can pull he can he can pull into you he can push away even a little bit if he needs to he can turn um, he can trip from there he can do all manner of different things from there he's got a w- a wide array of ability uh, and skills and attacks and uh, frankly a system from that right underhook just like Kane and Mendez's point was that you know Kane used to just tear people up on the ground that was what he did because that was, what was sort of his natural entry point into the sport. And as his hands got better, then he began to use them a little bit. I think, you know, the first time we saw him do that was in the Noguera fight where he just laid out Noguera, which you know, he, at UFC 200, you know, throwing spinning wheel kick against Travis Brown. Apparently, uh, I was told that it took him a year to, to perfect before he was even allowed to throw it, you know, and they were like, all right, now you're ready throw it. And so he did. Um, and he thinks that Habib might be ready for a similar arc where, no, the stand-up now is not great, but two years? Hmm. Maybe. Gyms and fighter styles. Hi, Luke. How are you? I'm well. After oh, and by the way, I got my fuck no. I got my uh, cup here, coffee. You will see that black? Hmm, that's good uh okay after watching habib's domination especially the top control got me thinking about other fighters that have done something similar it was like what rockhold did to weidman and branch sort of what kane did to jds twice a little bit what dc did to rumble twice a little bit all these fighters come from the same gym aka my question is does what gym you train at shape the style of fighter you become aka fighters seem to be pressure fighters and grinders Jason Perillo fighters seem to be excellent technical strikers. Team Alpha Mill fighters seem to be emphasized wrestling a lot. Is this too much of a general sweeping idea is or some truth to it? There is some some truth to it. I think here's the bigger deal. A lot of these gyms go about the process of recruitment. And so like recruits like. I think that's the issue there. You got you've got uh, Uriah Faber recruiting people similar to him in size and in skill set and then bring him into the gym and that has expanded pretty rapidly you know it's not just that those short wrestle boxers are the only kinds of guys they produce anymore but that is what they became known for and they have actually done quite a bit of that I think what you're seeing is in Javier Mendez it makes sense for somebody like crazy Bob Cook to bring in um, wrestlers and not all of them have worked out who was that heavyweight that didn't work Mark Ellis that didn't work out a few years ago Um, but you bring in these wrestlers and um, you get a guy like Javier Mendez who knows how to manage fighters more generally and can work on their stand-up, and you can get a lot. Luke Rock, a little bit of a different scenario, but I'm sure in training with guys like DC and Cormier, excuse me, DC and uh, Kane, you know, some of their, uh, and 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 Habib, too, has rubbed off on them. To me, it's it's, yes, certain coaches have certain strengths, but also certain gyms have certain systems of recruitment. Uh, and that's going to be that's going to be the interesting uh, aspect. That's why American Top Team's sort of all over the place because it's sort of like a network of little gyms inside a gym, or at least a network of clicks and coaches and sparring partners. And so there's not really one necessary identity, um, but a lot of these gyms, like the ones you mentioned, they do have that because the coach can can train a certain fighter better than other ones, and they recruit certain fighters that makes sense for that environment or somebody passes them along or somebody goes to them because they feel like they'd have a lot more success like Clay Guida going, for example, to team alpha Male. So there is something to be said for that. And then you bring in someone like Dwayne Ludwig at team alpha Male, and ultimately it didn't work out. But my judgment about that is, is remember if I bring in a coach and he's good at making TJ Dillashaw a champion or helping him to become one anyway, how about that? That says a lot about that coach, but the real impact to me was that you saw team alpha Male striking at a general level go up. You know, it's because there were so many guys who were so similar in skill set and body type. And you bring in a coach like that and they got better at scale together. That that to me was the real impact there. That to me was the real strength of what he did. And it's only because there were so many guys who were so similar. So I hope that answers that question better. And again, why would you go to Jason Perillo if you don't want to work on your hands? You wouldn't make it like if you are like, oh, I really want to work on my wrestling. I'll go to Jason Perillo. It wouldn't make any sense, but because so many go to him for their hands, people can be like, well, all the guys who train with him have good hands. Right, because people who want to work on it go to him, and they get a lot better under him because that's what he's good at, and that's what is naturally being attracted to him. And then someone says, the AKA guys you mentioned have very different styles. That's also true. There's a bit of an oversimplification of that. I do think there's something to be said for – you look at a lot of the wrist control that DC and Habib use, a lot of that is similar. Uh, Rockhold is a bit more of a uh, jiu-jitsu fighter than those two, right? You saw sort of these reverse triangles. He's locking up on Tim Boach and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, the way he passes to Mount and then holds it, I think is a little bit different. He's a little bit more of a jujitsu style, but there's something to be said for um, there is a degree of uh, uniqueness to all of them, and there are some overlapping similarities as well. Okay, good question um hilarious photoshop down here all right hey luke uh all the best in the new year same to you my friend can you explain what is happening to the once great jackson wink stable yeah uh i'm working on understanding that better myself but here we go here's the question years uh years gone by they had champions in john jones gsp home evans condit interim and others i have missed as well as top contenders and solid records cerrone swanson sanchez kennedy to me as a fan, the Jackson Wink guys seem to have an aura about them in their approach to strategy and strategy in fights. That meant they would have a greater chance of winning big fights. But recently their crown seems to have slipped. Do you know the reasons for this? Is there anything methodical in their potential lesser results, i.e. a coach leaving a change in approach, or is this down to the fighters being of a certain generation, which is now getting older, uh, or that they produced a certain style of fighter strategy, which has now been worked out by other camps? So I know I've seen a lot of chatter about this on the internet and there actually is some truth to it listen to this this is the record of these guys who put this together someone on uh, mma reddit put this together uh lynch 47 and this is what he wrote here uh here's how this goes dating back to ufc 214 now john jones of course beat daniel cormier but it was a no contest in the end for reasons we all know don cerrone loses Go to UFC fight night pettis versus moreno sergio pettis won and he only trains there in passing but okay, I guess you can call him a Jackson wing fighter to some extent. Uh, UFC Fight Night, Volkov, Struve, ba- ba- excuse me, Bahadur Azara, uh, uh, excuse me, Bahadur Azara wins. Rustam Havilov wins, so so far things are going great, but that's when things take a bit of a turn. UFC 215, Tyson Pedro loses. UFC Fight Night, Rockhold Branch, Anthony Hamilton loses. UFC 216, Ray Borg, Tom Dukenois, Lando Venata, who drew the other two, lost. Uh, UFC Fight Night, Cerrone versus Till. Don Cerrone loses. Jody Esquibo loses. Damian Stasiak loses. And then you keep going up. Derek Brunson wins at Brunson versus Machida. Jack Marshman loses. UFC Fight Night Par A versus Pettis. Anthony Pettis uses Izzy as his wrestling coach. Transfer part-time, loses. Diego Sanchez loses. Arlovsky wins, but he's been on a bit of a losing streak. John Dodson loses. Johnny Hendricks loses. Anthony Hamilton loses again. Marching Tibora at uh, Verdun versus Tibora Chase Sherman loses at Bisping versus Gastelum. Sergio Pettis, Michelle Watterson, him. all lose at 218. Cub Swanson loses against uh, um, Ortega, and then Holly Holm and Carlos Condit lost this past weekend, so that is not great. All right, so back to the question. What is happening here? Man, I think it's a variety of explanations. I know that the easy one that I've seen thrown out there willy-nilly is that um, everyone there before was on PEDs, and now no one is on PEDs because the old USADA boogeyman is there and this all explains their losses. This seems to me a deeply unscientific and totally uh, unfair assessment. There might be certain individual cases where that's true, but I have not seen really any solid evidence to um, corroborate such a claim. So while we cannot dismiss it until there is further evidence to really conclude that this is some kind of overarching explanation, uh, I'm going to say that that's simplistic to the point of being um, absurd. Okay, so where does that leave us? A few things. Um, someone had recently described to me the situation there, and you know, I think some further corroboration is required as a puppy mill that before, when the gym was in the old location, this was a much tighter, much more controlled, much more selective group where not only were less fighters allowed in, um, but uh, you know, the only the elite were allowed to train with each other, which is still the extent to some, uh, the case to some extent, but more than that, um, Greg Jackson was intimately involved with everything or at least as much as he could be. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. This is where some of this gets a little bit unclear. It's not clear to me exactly how much J- a wink is in or out, but certainly I've been told that Greg Jackson is um, not nearly as involved as he once was for reasons that I think he has a lot of business outside in terms of training, military and law enforcement. And I think that has had a pretty major impact. You now look at the way in which the gym has grown. They now have dorms. The business model seems to have changed. The recruitment policy seems to have changed. The oversight seems to have changed. The level of involvement from essentially the linchpins of these uh, institutions have changed. As a consequence, I think you're seeing the results. Yes, some of this is also the fact that these guys are getting older. GSP one, but he's long gone. John Jones is a generational talent. We'll see what happens with him, but he's a bit of an outlier. I think we'd all agree. Holm is one in four in her last few fights, but that's partly a function of age, and she's not been fighting chumps. Evans is now since gone, uh, and then you know, there's Condit there, and there's all the other ones there as well, but you get the idea that a lot of these are aging out a little bit as well, too. You know, that core that they had at one time, um, you know, it, uh, it's not really there anymore, and if you, if you take out um, Greg Jackson's level of oversight uh, that he once provided... Um, you know, you still have got really talented, really great people there. Brandon Gibson, I can't say enough good things about, not merely as an MMA trainer, but as a person and as a person who cares about his fighters. And I think the ones who work with him, um, you know, I think will have some success both in the short and the long term. But if you're asking about the gym more generally, my sense is that this new business model with Greg Jackson having his own other, um, you know, professional responsibilities outside of the gym has just transformed what it meant to be Jackson's it's not the old Jackson's anymore but which is why it's like all peds but then they don't really point to anything well somebody got worse right but like tie this together in a very specific way and that's where the argument tends to fall apart Uh, to me it's a a group of guys that got older it's a coach that's not really as involved anymore because he has a lot of work outside the gym it's a new gym it's a new recruitment policy it's a new business model and I think as a consequence you just Think of it this way. My brother and uh, my sister, they, uh, I'm not involved in any capacity whatsoever. They own a small restaurant. That's how they make their money. Yeah. Together they own it. And, uh, I remember one time years ago I went to, uh, I went to Spain. Um, Spain might be my favorite country in the world outside of, of the United States. Don't tell my wife that about Colombia. I do love Colombia, but Spain is something different. Okay. It is, it is a place of magic and wonder. Let me assure you. Um, Although the people could be nicer, but okay, neither here nor there. Here's what you notice when you go to Spain. A lot of the restaurants are really small, really small. Now, not like Tokyo small, where it's like six people can sit at a counter, but they can serve like 20 to 30 people. And you see this everywhere. Yes, there are some bigger ones than that, and there's some smaller ones than that, but you see a lot of that there. And I asked my brother and my sister what that was about because I didn't quite understand what the methodology was there. If you can make good food, just be like put together a bigger place and just make more money. You know, I mean, you guys are obviously talented chefs here, like kick it up a notch. And what they basically explained to me was they were were basically saying like, look, it's bait, not totally, but it's basically impossible to do really good banquet food, right? The more you take on as a kitchen, the more you take on as a back of the house and a front of the house in terms of your responsibility. So you've gone from feeding 20 people or at least a a place that can hold 20 at one time uh, a night to a place where you have to serve several hundred to a thousand or more in one night. The quality of the food is going to drop automatically. It's just not possible to produce that kind of quality at scale. That kind of quality requires a finite refined space with very clear oversight. The head chef needs to be completely in charge. He needs to know exactly when the food is going to be ready, exactly when it needs to be expedited, exactly how it needs to be cooked. It needs to be small enough that he can, he or she can detail exactly when it's going out and then make a call about all of this. Right. And you can only do that when you have a reasonably sized space to do that. When you get to banquet food, that's why it is, you know, you get you get iceberg lettuce with gross ranch on it, and you get a slice of cake that's just refined sugar and your chicken is rubbery and your steamed veggies have no life in them whatsoever. It's cause you can't produce good food at scale like that. That's why the cheesecake factory, when you have a giant menu like that, it doesn't produce very good food, right? It's because you can't, it's not possible when you go to that kind of scale. I think something similar has happened with that gym when it was a tight controlled gym with direct oversight from the head players involved and they were, and they were directly involved with the training and, and, Every aspect of it, you saw the results and when that dynamic changes and when it grows, you don't get the same results anymore. (laughs) Is there any way to get Dominic Cruz to stop saying underhooks 50 times per minute? Someone says he talks too much, is too much of a know-it-all and says underhooks more times than most adults have used words. I hate to tell you all this, but he's right. You know who uses the word underhooks a lot? Ryan Hall. In casual, well, not casual conversation. Like, if we're talking about coffee, he doesn't use the word underhook. But uh, in any kind of discussion about fighting, the first person who ever, like, turned the light bulb on in my head about the significance and importance of underhooking was Ryan Hall. Um, for Dominic Cruz to be as interested in them as he is, is not an accident. And I understand that it might be a way to, in a, in a broadcast-friendly sense, to dial it down a little bit. But people are like, oh my God, Dominic Cruz sounds like a know-it-all. That is exactly who I want telling me about fighting. I want the guy who not only thinks he knows it all, but has pretty much proven he knows it all. Uh, or at least knows a ton about it. And that's Dominic Cruz. Dominic Cruz, you should feel lucky when he's done talking that you got to be, bear witness to that kind of thing. You know, and he can be prickly at times, and sometimes he doesn't have the best attitude. I understand that. Just put that aside. Who cares about that? Forget all that. I don't need everyone on television to be the friendliest guy on earth, Um, although I do think he's a pretty friendly guy, you know, most of the time. I don't need that. What I need is I want to be given information so that I can figure out what to do with it, and on that track, uh, he's pretty great. So look, could he talk a little bit less? and be a little more parsimonious. Yes, of course he could. He's not—you know—he's still working on his broadcast skills. Remember, he was supposed to fight on that card, and ultimately was called to call it. Um, but um, I, I am very grateful we have him, and I'm grateful for guys who don't do that too. Like everyone's got their own style. You know, Joe Rogan doesn't do that. I'm gr- I'm grateful. Uh, Jimmy Smith doesn't do that at all. I like uh, Paul Felder does it a little bit. Um, Brian Stan did it a little bit. I, I, I like that. I, li- I like having a diversity of styles. I don't want all the same styles. For better or for worse, from my commentary team. So, yeah, like, is there a point to be made that, like, is this broadcasting scale perfect? No. But is it getting a lot better? Yes. And um, I always, I always feel like I learn something when he talks. So just listen. Uh, okay, I'll do these quickly if I can. Someone says, um, Awards predictions. Luke, forget 2017. That is oh, oh wait. Predictions for 2018's fighter of the year. How could I possibly know that? Um, dog s performance. What do you think of McGregor's comment that Habib's performance was dog S? So why would he never Okay? He was passive aggressive about um Holloway. With the glasses thing. I don't recall him ever commenting on Tony. Um, And Nate Diaz hasn't fought since then. So that wouldn't work. And he was complimentary. You'll recall about Gaethje and Johnson. So that's interesting. So it looks to me like. And then answering Habib directly. I mean he didn't even do that to Mayweather. You know look. You can read into that what you want. My hunch is that. I don't necessarily think that McGregor thinks that Habib is a threat. Maybe he should. Maybe he, you know, you can have a different opinion about that. But I do think he recognizes that the wider public thinks that Habib is some kind of threat. And that's why he reacted the way that he did. Right? I don't think, rationally speaking, McGregor is, like, afraid. Of Habib Nurmagomedov, I don't think that's true at all. I think he actually, as I'm telling you, if you go back and you watch, it's not that Habib would fight Barboza the way he would fight McGregor. But if you're watching, if you're McGregor and you're watching this guy cross his feet and just run across the octagon, you're like, oh my god, I would stretch this guy. You know, I can see why he would think that. Uh, and seeing how everyone was like heaping praise, it's not that the praise that came by Tony was begrudging. That's not true. People were very happy to give Tony praise and they've been really kind of, you know, saying a lot of good things about him because he's been doing a lot of great things very recently. But there was another level of like people's eyeballs popping out when they saw Habib do that to Edson Barboza. I think people were like, holy, what was that? I mean, this was this was, you know, a lion toying with a gazelle as they were eating it alive or something. And, and I think in recognizing that the public felt that way, he felt a need to go over the top. So, you know, was it dog-ass? I mean, can we please be serious about that? Of course it's not. It's one of the most marvelous performances of fighting in all of 2017. Uh, it, you know, no, it's, it's, it's clearly excellent. Um, and I don't think Conor is like, oh, no, what <laughs> what am I going to do? But I do think he can hear everyone around him looking at Habib being like, that's the dude that's going to beat you. And he's like, "Eh, you don't know anything. You know, I think that's the reaction that he's having here. Someone says it was a whole lot better than a non-performance. The dude is a tool. I think he's talking about Connor. This person writes this, not I. This dude is a tool and people that enjoy looking at pictures of someone else, enjoying rented cars (laughs) and girly watches and furry slippers are tools too. He's a top 10 fighter acting like he's the number one of all time. All right. So here's what I'll say about this, um, and I had a tweet about it. I was like, and he was like, "Oh, you know, I'm gonna have Diddy bread, blah 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 blah." And my 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 point was, you know, my point was basically, look, here's here's how I feel about Conor McGregor right now. I miss him. I miss, I'm the game is better when Conor McGregor is competing, and anybody who tells you otherwise is just lying. Even if you hate the guy, even if you're like this guy and you think he's a tool and a fraud, and whatever else you think about him, the game is better when he's around. It's more fun. It's more high profile. Frankly, there are interesting sporting questions at play here. Um, It's better for media. We'll be honest about that, right? Like, but it's better for fans too, I feel like. It's better for MMA when he's, like, it's just better. It's better when he's around, and I have no problems admitting that. I have no problem saying that. I wish seriously i cannot be more honest about this nothing would make me happier than to see conor mcgregor in 2016 fought three times man can you imagine how awesome 2018 would be if conor mcgregor fought three freaking times come on y'all like if you i saw people online being like i'm 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 done with him i don't care if he comes back i care i absolutely care because it's just better when he's around fact of the matter you know And how long that's the case i don't know but for now I absolutely wish he would come back because it's just better when he's around. But here's the fact of the matter. His act about I'm not coming back and I'm I'm going to create scarcity and distance between myself and the game until I am properly rewarded. Oh my God, this act is so tired. It's so tired. It's so old. It's so stale. It doesn't feel interesting to me anymore. And look, maybe if Max Holloway or Eddie Alvarez or uh, Tony Ferguson or Habib Nurmagomedov, Maybe if they had the kind of money and the success that Connor has, maybe they would think just like him. I don't know. There's an argument to be made that that's true, but they're not. And I can tell you what they do want to do. Those guys are chomping at the bit to compete. You know, in an era where we thought for a while guys were just going to sit back. Remember, I talked about this malaise not making the machine work? I'm feeling a little bit of a, of a sea change happening where fans are beginning to get tired of that a little bit, and they're pushing back against Because those are the old norms that were in place that are sort of surviving here a little bit. And I think fans are pushing back against that. And when you have other guys like Max Holloway, he's like, oh, I'm supposed to fight Frankie? You want me to fight Jose again? Sure, no problem. Where do I sign? Ready to go out there. And he only fought twice, but I think he would have fought more if given an opportunity or at least had his way. If you ask him, he wants to fight three times a year. He said he even fight four times a year if he would we, really um worth his time but i just feel like the guys who are acting not exactly opposite to conor mcgregor but providing fans that that they're servicing fans in that way of of staying in front of the game and staying on camera and staying out there and doing those things you know mayweather had enough sense to create distance and then come back create distance and then come back we'll see how mcgregor manages it but you know I saw people being like, I love when Conor taunts people on social media. That's great if he's out there fighting. Not so great if he's not out there fighting. And yes, I agree with most of you who think he should be getting paid what he's worth. And I hope to God they can resolve this in some kind of amicable way. I'm tired of hearing how underpaid he is, to be quite honest. Um, and he probably has an argument that he's right. And maybe he should be getting uh, you know, promotional checks by being a co-promoter. I'm just articulating to you, like, it's a total lie to say that we don't want him back. We absolutely want him back. But if you're not gonna come back, if you're just gonna be on social media and you're gonna come back to such a degree that there's gonna be these massively long spaces in between, I'm gonna lose interest because guys like Max Holloway and Tony Ferguson and Habib, and I can list countless others, they're out there getting it done. And it's frankly thrilling and it's exciting and it's enough to sustain my fandom. It would be infinitely better to have Conor McGregor around, fact but if he's not gonna be around, I'll be just fine with the ones who are here. And I feel like a lot of fans uh, share some version of that argument. All right, what is next for Condit, man? I don't know. Someone says he has lost three in a row and didn't look like the natural-born killer anymore. What do you think is and should be next for Condit? Is it two years since the loss? Excuse me. It is two years since the loss against Lawler. Can't help to think what could have been if he had gotten that decision. They are both coming off recent losses. Could they do a Condit Lawler 2? God. The fight that took their careers from them? I don't know if I want to do that again, to be honest. My sense about that, and I mentioned this on my post-fight special um, after the uh, contest on Saturday night was three things. Number one, he didn't look gun shy to me. He wasn't throwing with reckless abandon or, you know, he wasn't out there really getting slugging it out, but, you know, BJ Penn looked shopworn against, um, uh, who was it? Yair Rodriguez, and even to an extent against Dennis Seaver, you know, kind of just posing off and then absorbing and then absorbing and then absorbing and then not really doing a whole lot about it in the end. Um, That to me is, that that's the sign that someone's done. You know, when they just sit there and take it like that. I didn't really see that from him. In fact, when he had Neil Magny against the fence, he was lighting him up. Um, so that was good news. On the other hand, I thought at the same time that the time off probably was mentally refreshing for him and physically rejuvenating, but it put him out of a rhythm. Jimmy Smith had a wonderful tweet that basically like, you know, condit style essentially necessitates repetition and isn't aided by being time by taking time off. And I think that's right. I mean, his body might be aided by taking time off. His sort of spirit, generally speaking, might be aided by taking time off. Um, but his technical game is not. And I think that showed. And I think lastly, I simply don't know how you could argue against it. You guys can disagree with me about the first two in either direction. But this one I see, seems to be fundamentally clear. Um, him and Lawler lost a piece of themselves that night. You know, they, they, they they just weren't the same after that. I don't um, I don't see how you can really are. Certainly Car- Carlos has not been and I would argue Lawler too, you know, how much debatable. Um but I don't after a war like that, man, you're just never the same. There's a cost to this game. You don't just fight a fight like that, go home and, you know, take a couple Advil and sleep it off. Like that is that is that will alter you. Um you know, think about someone who was ever in a really horrible car crash. Now he didn't like break his spine or anything, but you know, it's something kind of akin to that. You know, where you're just not. Yeah, maybe they walk with a limp from now on or something. It's something like that. You know, uh, again, he doesn't walk with a limp. I'm, I'm really pointing out when you get into these like these these bloodthirsty contests where you just can't believe that they have continued like this. You know, some guys maybe are a little bit different. Mark Hunt seems to be a little bit different in that regard, but. Ninety-nine percent of them, man, they just don't walk out the same as they walked in. Now, does that mean he can't fight at the UFC level? I don't know that that's true. Neil Magny won by clinching and wrestling, basically. So maybe with a different matchup, he could look a little bit different. So I, I don't necessarily think a retirement is essential, but I think if they matched him up with a striker and it went more or less the same, where you know he did enough but not enough to win, you know, enough not to look bad but not enough to win, I think at that point he would probably have to have some, some you know, questions about what he's going to do with his future uh you know but you know we love those wars man we love those wars but this is why i'm not saying like that was a clear case where somebody should have thrown in the towel but and it's a semi different debate but corners saving their guys from additional punishment in mma needs to be a thing because um i think we're learning the hard way that Guys taking too much punishment and having that affect them is not just something exclusive to boxers. What changes would you want to see in 2018? Someone said, mine would be fewer fight nights. I don't necessarily need fewer fight nights. I would like to see way more fight nights on Fight Pass. That's what I want to see. Put them on Fight Pass, man. Come on, let's do something with that service. Let's really dig our heels in that thing. Uh, introduction of the 165 and 225 pound weight class. I hope neither of those ever happen. Round by round scoring put up on the screen. I'm absolutely at least in favor of trying that. Weigh in starting from a month out, like California did for USC 214. To the extent you could do that in different states? Sure. Better designed gloves to prevent eye pokes. If they can do it, sure. Um, yeah. And then I would say, can we have an earlier start time? Please. Can we not have a six fight main card that starts at 10 and goes to one in the morning? I would like to have my marriage back. It'd be nice. Change of camps. Oh, I can't get into some. All right, here we go. Cyborg question, Luke. I think what was, okay. I think what cyborg experiences is very similar to what women experience when they first really started to infiltrate the workplace, especially the boardroom. They were called men bulls. Other things he lists here. and all kinds of other words, to get them back into their assigned boxes. What Cyborg experiencing is no different. I think that part is true. However, she really is not that big and doesn't look that masculine, but she does intimidate people. People are not comfortable with a woman having so much power and strength. Same for Serena. So they have to turn her into a man in order to deal with it. Your thoughts. Boy, this is a really complicated topic. Um, well, look. Number one, she has brought scrutiny upon herself with some of her inability to do her job properly. And by that, I mean, if you're going to agree to a certain rule set, it might behoove you to follow it. And of course, in 2011 uh, that we know of, that's she did not do that. Um, this more recent indiscretion, I don't think too much about. I don't really care. But that one, she, she, she caused some problems for herself in doing that. So one is, there's that. Two, going to war promotionally with the UFC was not beneficial to her. I think the UFC wanted a bit of a smear campaign against her. Um, And I think, you know, fans are like, my opinion of Cyborg is entirely rooted in my belief that she either has, was, is, or some combination of all of that using performance-enhancing drugs. It has nothing to do with anything else. But I just don't believe that. You cannot tell me that the UFC, when you have the president of the company out there calling her Vanderlei Sylvan Address, that this didn't bleed out into the larger fan base, especially at a time when Dana was still revered and adored by the fan base. That is no longer the case, but for year over year over year what he said was manna from heaven it was gospel Um, and it's just not possible for me to accept the idea that that it has nothing to do with that of course it does of course it does it has also things to do with our 2011 um indiscretions so it's not one or the other it's a combination of many things i also think it's this one that if a woman is not sufficiently feminine you know in a sport where it's like the ones who are very very pretty and super feminine they get rewarded handsomely Um, even if they can't really fight all that well, uh, or don't have enough of a winning streak. And I'm expected to believe that the ones who don't like that don't either, uh, not merely don't enjoy the same rewards, but aren't the subject of additional uh, dismissiveness or bullying or insulting. I mean, come on, this is human behavior in every walk of life. Not merely this one, but all of them. So of course that's true. I think the tricky one and the tricky part of this is people like, well, um, her appearance however you want to call it has fundamentally been altered by for, like long-term performance enhancing drug use and i think that's where it gets to a bit of a thorny issue is it to me a plausible not the definitive answer but among a variety of plausible explanations right let's say there's let's say there's a bunch of them is one of those things could it be that of course it could be that i cannot say with any, i don't have any evidence to suggest that it's true but um you know i think it's enough to have some some level of rational suspicion my problem is this notion about well she, i heard it all, over and over again well she doesn't pass the eye test what is this eye test that everyone keeps talking about you don't want to be in a position where you believe nothing that, about the visual stimuli that's coming into your brain that, that would be too much but you should really have a sense of um limit about what you're willing to accept as this coming through to your brain is true oh this person clearly looks this way that must be the explanation. It could be one and I'm not telling you to never believe your lying eyes, but I think what I am saying is, um, she has one indiscretion. so what you're either telling me is that she's off of her, uh, roids now and, uh, USADA has stopped her from using yet. She's still winning, um, relatively easily. I thought that was a fairly easy win for her all the way through those five rounds. Um, or that she used all that time when it was commission testing and just got away with it and now she is um uh, you know her appearance has since been altered but her appearance has not altered much um from those days it would actually have to be from before that to a large degree um her musculature has gone down a little bit but she's obviously a lot older at this point and has had brutal weight cuts um look you can believe the, pro- the problem with cyborg is it doesn't really matter what i say to you right now some people are just going to fundamentally believe because she was tarred and feathered and because she has her own mistakes that she is a poster child for performance enhancing drug use and other people are going to say well you know, these arguments about what passes the eye test is a deep, you know totally unscientific way to go through things. You know, either you have evidence about this or you don't. None of us are really medical professionals who can really say that, you know, what kind of masculinizing effects there have been long-term, especially when her appearance hasn't really altered all that much since the, you know, strike force, even the lead XC days. It looks pretty similar to me. Much of whatever change would have had to happen before that. Um, and, you know, we've allowed her to compete. So what really, I mean, it, it, it's just, People are going to believe what they want to believe about her. That's it. That's that's really the bottom line about it. I only thing I would caution you is this argument about the eye test. You know, eyewitness testimony increasingly in 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 courts across America has become a far less reliable way to either provide testimony or provide evidence of guilt or innocence because it turns out that what people think they see, what they what they think they remember, often conflicts very uh, much with what the Ultimately, other forms of evidence, including you know, uh, you know, know, exonerating uh, video evidence, tends to show. And none of us are doctors. And if you are a doctor out there and you're watching and you say there is a masculinizing effect from what you perceive to be long-term performance sensitive drug use, that's an opinion that I think we would have to listen to at a bare minimum, right? But this notion of, well, she kind of looks like a man, she has one failed test. Um, your notion that she looks like a man is in part a function of this long-term smear campaign, perhaps some unhealthy, emotionally damaged issues that some people have about what a woman's appearance is and isn't supposed to be, and, of course, her own F-ups back then. It's the stew that has combined all together. But she's a poster child because she messed up, uh, because there's some rational suspicion, I think, that is in play, and because she was a victim of a coordinated campaign. I just don't know how you can you can't remove any of those from the equation, and and where those become integrated and separated, is so hard to parse at this point that um, people have just sort of taken a side inside the space, and and here we are today. So, I, I'm just begging you, going forward, I'm not telling you to never believe your lying eyes, but saying this clearly to me looks like a masculinizing effect. That's not evidence. It, it's not evidence. I'm sorry. It's just not that that doesn't mean really. I'm not saying it means nothing. It doesn't mean much. All right. Let's go to the Twitter machine if we can at L Thomas news. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll take your question there. Someone says, are you kidding me? Us UK fans have to wait until three or four a.m. Yeah. Well, don't live in the UK. All right. Uh, Someone says, I saw that you spoke out against the credential photographer's insults of Chris Cyborg. I just called it shameful, which it was. I didn't say anything else about it. Has the UFC done enough in response to this situation? I've talked about this enough already. Thoughts on the UFC and their upcoming TV rights deal? It's too open-ended of a question. Oh, good question. Last week, you asked on Twitter about underappreciated coaches. Is there a lot of info on Max Holloway's coaches? Obviously, Max is elite, but I know he trains with other Hawaiian UFC fighters, but I don't hear much about Max's camp. So I have an article coming out. I'm not sure when. Soonish. It's already done. It's already turned in. But I talked to like 20 or so coaches, analysts, and fighters in MMA about the biggest changes they saw in the sport in terms of like technical or tactical. Uh, improvements and I compiled them all and one of the guys I talked to was his striking coach Max Holloway striking coach a gentleman by the name of Ivan Flores Ivan Flores is a very very smart guy very very smart guy Um, and uh, I was happy to have his inclusion so we're I'm gonna be one of my goals this year I keep going back to the well with a lot of the same coaches because they're so smart and they're so good but one of my goals this year is to really get out and find some of these underappreciated coaches I think what's happening in Hawaii is Because those guys are separated, literally by six hours, just to get from Hawaii to, um, you know, California, they're just kind of tucked away, and they're not really. The media doesn't have as much of an opportunity, in the same kind of way, to to talk about them or get to know them or interact with them, as they would if they were on the mainland. So I think it kind of diminishes their profile. But I'm I'm going to do what I can this year um, to give guys who are very talented like that um, a little bit more shine. Uh, In regards to Jackson Wink issues, another factor is that more MMA gyms are starting to establish best practices, whereas Jackson Wink was one of the first to use those practices in MMA. This is also very true. It's a copycat league, much like the NFL. And um, I noted last chat, like one of the major changes I saw in 2017 was that you were seeing fighters come out of gyms you'd never heard of, and they were doing things that you didn't think people like that could do. Uh, And I think the game has not leveled out exactly, but the tinier gyms have caught up to a much stronger degree. What do about Connor versus Tony in March and Habib versus Eddie Alvarez in April? I still think Alvarez should fight Poirier. I know he's not going to, but if you ask me what I think about it, that's what I think about it. Is the growing number of top Bantamweight contenders making a Dillashaw versus DJ fight more or less likely in 2018? I think the only thing that would make it less likely is if it just carries on forever without some kind of result. But I think it's still pretty likely. There's, there's demand for that, for sure. It's less about what Bantamweight contenders are up to and more about like people desperate to see DJ fight somebody like that. So. I agree. Tony versus Habib is the fight to make, but I think UFC should be cautious letting Habib leapfrog Tony against Connor. Habib has only two lightweight wins in almost four years. Tony has nine in that time. There should be some appreciation shown for his activity. I agree. I agree. After the Stipe and Gnu fight, what happens to the heavyweight division? Seems like no obvious contenders coming up. Cain Velasquez is coming back. We'll see what Verdum can get up and going. Um, They'll find ways. I'm really not too worried about it. Uh, Let's see. We'll be the champion in each weight class by the end of 2018? Some donks, don't know. What's was the first thing you would change with the live presentation of UFC events if you ran the UFC? Geez. Uh, the live presentation. The biggest criticism I have, and I don't have a solution for this, I'm not in the production world, but I have to believe that there is someone in the production world who could find a way to, to effectively communicate what city they're in each way beyond B-roll or a time-lapse footage outside of the arena that they're in that night. I have to believe that's true. Uh, There are many other things I would change, but that's probably chief among them. I also think that they should find a way to change the way the shots are made. So, like, there are all these panels on the octagon, right? There's eight of them, obviously. And at the ring posts or the corners of them, not all of them, but at many of them, they have these stands, these, like, metal stands, like, almost like how a... uh, a pin sits in a in a barbell rack, and, it's, and they, they lock it in on two sides, and it drops down, and then they stand on that, and they all wear all black, and then they film over the top. You know, you see in college football now and in the NFL, I don't know what the name of it is, but they have this system of pulleys and strings where the camera can dip down on the field and get not quite to player level, but, like, just above player level, and it can swoop side to side and forward and back. creates these really incredible dynamic football angles um, I think something like that in the Octagon would be tremendous. I know it'd probably be insanely expensive. You couldn't do it all the time. You, maybe you could only do it once a year, but they need to have like, you know the, people didn't like the Golden Matter at UFC 200 and maybe it wasn't a good idea. I didn't mind it, but maybe it wasn't a good idea. But again, I think we should tend to encourage change, encourage, don't like don't be so negative about it. That they don't want to try anything anymore. You know, when they did the who's the dog from stained? Aaron Lewis, is that his name? And they had Sinead O'Connor coming out, and then they put the graphics package on top of the Octagon. I mean, that was so awesome, right? Encouraging ways to do that. Even if you can't show what city you're in, make the event itself feel unique beyond who's there. You know, having its own color palette, having its own whatever. And again, the more you grow at scale, the harder it is to make each of those special. But but some effort, I think, in that regard needs to be made. In that regard, I should say. Who do you think gives the best mid round instruction? And do you recall any mid round instructions where we clearly see the fighter utilize it effectively? I mean, there's a bunch, tons. I could, I could hardly name any. Uh, there's so many of them. Who gives the best mid round instructions? Greg Jackson gives good instructions. Ivan Flores gives really good instructions. I thought, I think Mark Delagrati gives very good instructions. Um, in terms of fighters, James Krause isn't bad, actually. Um, who else is good at giving instructions that I've heard? There might be plenty of them. And also in other languages, I don't speak, you know, Portuguese or Spanish, but I'd be, I'd be excluding them. And there might be some really good ones in, in those worlds as well. Um, Mike Brown is, gives good instructions. Who else gives really good instructions? Uh, Justin Perilla gives good instructions. A lot of them. There's a lot of really good ones. Uh, considering the backed up landscape of the 185 and more notably the 155 pound division, do you think the UFC will shift back toward a matchmaking structure based more closely on rankings in 2018? It's weird because people say rankings don't matter. And I'm like, rankings matter now more than they have ever, ever. Like it's not even close anymore. Uh even if the fights themselves don't necessarily match what you would think like a disciplined ranking system would do, fighters use it as a leveraging tool to accept a variety of contests in a way that they never did before. And uh, before it was like the numbers seemed so absurd that who cared about them. But now it's like the absurdity of the numbers is not even examined anymore. Like we need to have a debate about this because Uh, the UFC jumps around a little bit for sure, but the extent to which the fighters leverage it is extraordinary relative to at least how it used to be. And I think there's some pernicious effects as a consequence. Um, and I, and I don't know what's going to happen in 2018. I don't know unless the fans demand it. I don't know how much. I think I think 2017 was the year where fans and fighters were a bit in lockstep, following the leads of what they wanted and and their demands, and that may follow as well in 2018. But I think what we're seeing is if the fans really say, you know, guys, we, you know, fighters like Max Holloway, yeah, sure, line them up, I'll knock them down. You know, uh, you want me to compete? Yeah, sure, no problem. Like I'm not, I'm ready to go. You know, whenever the when you you find you find me a contender. And I'll be there. You know, that kind of thing. Um, it, the more that is rewarded, the more that will bleed out into other fighters. I, I, I fundamentally believe that. And the more Conor stays absent and doesn't bring his worldview to bear, because when he's in there, it bleeds out. And when he's not there, it doesn't. And I think there's a lot of copycatting, not just like, oh, that fighter does this fight in that octagon at that time. Oh, I like, I like the way he sets up his, his cross with his jab or something like that. Um, more than that, I think there's also just an attitude, you know, how what, what do the champions do in MMA? And when the champions act a certain way, other champions and other contenders follow. And so, uh, if Connor's going to be away for a while, and people like Max and Tony and Habib and whoever uh, are going to define how champions act, I think that will, um, and part of that's led by it's, you know, it's handheld by consumer demand as well. I think that'll have a big effect. you know Russian heavyweight Vitaly Minikov. Like, personally? No. He holds a first-round TK over Volkov, who's top 10 in the UFC. He's also 21 or no. I believe he should be in the UFC. Yeah, well, he fought on Fight Pass on that, what, that ETN card or whatever it was, ENT card. Uh, oh, by the way, Costa scoring for Atletico. Man, F Diego Costa. Uh, yeah, he's very good. He's very good. There's lots of really good heavyweights, for sure. Uh, okay. Okay. Let's see if there's anything else here on this chat thread. There's like a giant debate about Cyborg here in the uh, comment section. Ryzen December cards. Did you watch the Ryzen cards recently? I watched most of them, not all of them. And so what are your thoughts? I loved them. I thought it was a big win for that company. Turns out the ratings were flat. Um, My understanding about the ratings for... Let me see if I have these numbers for you. I have a reader who lives uh, in Japan, I believe, who sends me all this information about the uh, about the ratings, and he always has really good information. Let me read this to you. This is what he wrote, and I'm, you know, my, if someone disagrees with this, by all means, let me know. Ratings uh, for the Ryzen five and a half hour New Year's Eve show on Fuji TV topped out at about six point four percent during the seven thirty to nine thirty p.m. block during the women's Super Anso Atomweight tournament final match between Reina and Kana Asakura. Somewhat unintuitively, it dipped to 4.3% during the final 80 minutes, including Kyoji Horoguchi's tournament final win over Shintaro Ishiwatari. The ratings were basically flat compared to Ryzen's New Year's Eve show last year. Considering the nice ratings gains that Ryzen's quarterly shows enjoyed in 2017, highs of 5.4 for the spring show, 6.3 for the summer, 7.1 for the autumn, the flat ratings compared to last year have to be considered a dis- disappointment, but I would note that Fuji TV did not really help issues by randomly splicing matches from the December 29th show, the results of which had been known for days, out of sequence into the broadcast in primetime, which itself was tape delayed by several hours. Also, the card was available live on streaming pay per view um, for a quite reasonable fee of 2,000 yen or $18 or 3,000 yen, $27 for a package of both year end shows, which surely many even semi serious MMA fans purchased. The card was also available live for subscribers on the Sky Perfect cable TV package, competing against a number of live sporting events on free TV as well as a number of other lavish New Year's Eve specials. It wasn't shocking to me that the ratings weren't especially high. Ryzen did beat the other sports shows, which is still something at the same time. The way Fuji TV and Ryzen are handling these tentpole New Year, excuse me New Year's Eve events is worrisome. It's 2018, not 2000. You can't slap together uh, a six-hour package of edited pre-taped fights, pretended it is live, and expect people to tune in especially when most young single people don't live on their own, um, have cut the cord, and don't even own TVs. In my humble opinion, Japanese companies tend to learn a lot from success, but not a lot from failure. And if Verizon is a straight pride redux down to its antiquated programming strategy, I predict it's not going to do well. Can't give you a much better answer than that. people asking me about chiropractors. I've been to a chiropractor once and it was uh, very helpful, but I don't know to what extent there is a large basis of science about it. So I'll just leave it at that. Okay, let me blow my nose here or at least wipe it because it's leaking. Uh, Thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. There is an MMA beat tomorrow, so be on the lookout for that. I believe it will be Ariel's Triumphant Return. And uh, there are no fights this weekend. So take the wife out. Take the dog for a walk. If you're like me and live on the East Coast, try not to freeze to death. And uh, yeah, it's 2018. It's going to be a great year. I'm excited about the challenges ahead. Thank you guys so much for watching. Subscribe to MMA Fighting below. Like the video. And until next time, donkeys, uh, stay frosty. How about that?